All right, so I was looking just a minute ago um, how much we like, which I'm reluctant to say how many weeks, uh, but technically, as far as topically, we don't have a whole lot left to go. Uh, we've talked about anthropology, which is a study of man, and the Bible always presents man as a whole. And that was the conclusion that we came away with. And when I get to the end of this, I'll repeat all this and try to connect all the dots for you. And then we talked about hermartiology, which is the study of sin. And you come to the conclusion that the whole man is wholly affected by sin. There is no part of man that's not corrupted by the fallen nature that we inherited from Adam. And we portray that in every single way. So now we spent the majority of our time on soteriology, the study of salvation. Okay, And... We have a little ways to go, uh, we're, but once we finish soteriology, then we'll study, uh, well, we'll still be on soteriology, but we'll study sanctification. So right now we're studying salvation, and then sa uh, sanctification is not too long. So if you're wondering where we go from here, that's where we go from here, and we'll stay on sanctification as long as we need to, just like we've tried to stay on salvation as long as we, we need to. Uh, but we come to, it's interesting, everybody shows up when we hit this. Uh, I forget how many weeks we've been going here. but uh, We come to the most hated doctrine in the Bible, uh, and which most of you know by now is the doctrine of election. And I'll show you how that unfolds in Scripture. We've been kind of progressing toward this way, and now we finally made it. Today we'll look at just Old Testament words, a typical pattern. We'll look at the words that the Lord used in a non-moral, non-theological context, and then theological, how it applies to salvation and those sort of things. And then we'll move into the New Testament. And once you move into the New Testament, which Lord will we'll start next week, you've got a whole lot more words and you've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, so we should cover the entire Old Testament uh, from that perspective tonight. But I do want you to challenge it. Uh, this particular doctrine, I do want you to think on it um, because I, don't, I never want you to just accept anything I'm saying at all. That's totally off the table. Uh, I just want you to begin to understand it yourself. And some of you, I realize, are probably farther down the road than I am, which is just fine. Some of you, these are the first things you've heard about this. So I just want you to walk through it and process it and ask really hard questions because I did for a number of years uh, as I began to understand this doctrine. It's difficult to understand. I think the reasons that people hate it so much, and I was trying to think of maybe the top three. Number one, free will is offended by this doctrine. And I think that might be the number one problem that people hate the most. And being Westerners, we've been raised in a free country Freedom is, you know, everything to us. And so we bring that sort of thinking into soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and we want to apply our freedoms to our salvation. But I'll show you that in the text. That's not a good thing to bring into this doctrine. Um, but on the same time, some people take the conclusion of election and run it all the way to beyond uh, common logic and get this idea that God predestined this one for heaven and this one for hell and that's not in scripture uh, at all and so I don't want you to ever draw that conclusion scripture doesn't 
Or some take it to the conclusion, again, way too far of the conclusion that, um, well, I don't even go there. We'll just walk through the text. I'll just do that. We'll walk through it. All right. So, again, tonight we've talked about some things. We're going to talk about the divine plan and the divine process. But first, the divine motivation. I want to rehash these things in your mind so we can begin to connect all the dots. So what is the motivation for our salvation? Y'all remember this? Rob got it the last time I asked this question. Do you still remember it, Rob? Yeah. But do what? Yeah, y'all are giving big theological words. His character. God's character is what motivated our salvation. And that's important for you to know because we did anthropology, study of man. We did martiology, study of sin. And you realize there's nothing in us that motivated God to save us. What motivated God to save us was his own character. Now think about this from the context of probably everybody in here has had little babies. What motivated you to get up at 2 a.m. and take care of that child that's screaming and hungry and can't be pacified? It was your own character. It was your own love for that child. And so you can translate that into salvation. There wasn't anything going on with us that made us attractive to the Father. He was motivated by who He was. And so, therefore, He has worked out salvation for us. Now, what is the divine grounds for our salvation? What is He based on? There's a bedrock foundation, just like you're going to build a house and you pour a footer. What is the footing for our salvation? Which, theologically, now I want a theological term. Starts with the letter A. Atonement. Okay? And he accomplished so much. We can refer to it just as Calvary. But when Jesus Christ died in our place, that's the footing of our salvation. It's all built upon that. Okay? Without that, there is no salvation. Without God's character, there is no salvation. So now we're going to look at the divine plan and process. And we talk about the plan and the process. That's everything from your salvation to your glorification with your sanctification in the middle. So this is God's plan for saving you all the way to the point of glorifying you. And I used a little easier words, saved, transformed, changed eternally. So these are the things we're going to talk about. What did God do? from the point of bringing us to saving faith all the way to glorifying us eternally. What is God's plan for these things? Now, the most foundational element to this process, the initial action is of God and its election. It takes place in eternity past. This is what God did before there was anything. And this is why it's so difficult for us to understand because we don't know what motivated God to choose. We have no idea. We're not told in Scripture. He didn't use a, you know, we always throw around the word algorithms today because you're on social media so much. He didn't have a, a divine algorithm by which he did this. Okay? We simply don't know. And what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to throw us into the decision-making process. Well, you know, from eternity past, God looked throughout time and he saw, you know, Chris Hancock, he's going to be a pretty good old guy. And when he hears the gospel, he's going to believe, so I'm going to choose him. You know, that's always been presented uh, in Southern Baptist churches, and that's a false idea. In fact, the scripture says exactly the opposite. 
when he looked throughout eternity past, what he saw is absolutely rebellion in all of our hearts. So the opposite thing is communicated in Scripture. But because we don't understand it, we feel the need to explain it. And so I spent, what, 45 minutes last week trying to tell you there's things that you just can't explain in Scripture. There are things in balance that I finally have come to the place with. I'm comfortable with leaving them in balance. I don't feel like I have to draw all the lines connecting all the dots. I just don't. We're talking about God. So in this initial process, and the only reason we know about the initial process is because he tells us in Ephesians 1 and 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. This was my initial process. I chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before time, God says, I'm going to get the ball rolling with election. Of course, we figure out in Romans 8, you meet the word, we'll get in the New Testament, we'll hear the word predestination. That's a New Testament word, not an Old Testament word. We're working on Old Testament today. We hear the word predestination, which he did in Christ in eternity past before he did anything. So the plan, what got all of you started or each of you started in presenting you before God holy and blameless, sanctified? What, what was the initial step? God chose you in eternity past for this. Okay. Now, here's your first Old Testament word. You know, it's not necessary that you learn how to pronounce it, but um, this one is pretty easy to pronounce. Baher, uh, ba, B-A, and then hair, if you don't want to do the sound, but it's, it's a little bit in there. Baher most basically means to choose or to select. And when we say in non-moral context, just he chose a piece of fruit, you'd see this word used. It has nothing to do theologically. It just shows you that there was a selection made. So when it comes into theological context, then it takes on the idea of to elect. Okay. Um, this is by far the most significant word that you're going to find in the Old Testament. Uh, and I'll give you some context. So this is where I want you to help me if my pen works. I'm trying to figure out why Nathan's pen works better than mine. May just be his near iPad, but his his runs pretty good. Psalms one thirty five. Here's your word, okay? Baher, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. All right. What did God choose? These are the questions I'm going to ask you almost on every slide. And. Being in the Psalms or the Proverbs, he explains it further in the second part of the verse. Israel. Israel. Very good. So here, the first use of this word, chosen, we find it a nation of people. And why did he do it? For himself. For himself. Right here. Your mind. Now, that's enough for us to stop and just reflect on from a devotional aspect. What did God base election on? We have no idea. Why did he choose? For his own possession. I wanted you as mine. That's it. Okay? So he chose an entire nation for his possession. All right? Uh, here's another one, Psalm 78. Then the Lord awoke. 
as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backwards. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose, Meher, the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. Now, you've got your Bible. We don't usually take time to do this. Go with me to Psalm 78. I struggle with the illustration talking about the, the Lord as a warrior waking up from being drunk with wine. I thought that's a really poor choice of words who wrote that, but there's a reason he did that. So Psalm 78, you can see David did not write this. If you'll notice in verse 2, the writer is going to tell you what he is about to describe. Psalm 78, verse 2, I'll open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings of old. Okay, so what he does is in this very long psalm is he lays out the history of Israel. Okay, uh, look at verse 17. Yet they still continue to sin against God or against him. You see what he's going to talk about the most. Um, verse 21. Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. Anger mounted against Israel. God's punishing his own people. Uh, verse 34, when he killed them, then they sought for him and returned and searched diligently for God when he worked repentance in their heart through, through punishment. Verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. So it keeps this all, this all, all the way through. Um, and then you turn to verse 63. Well, let's start in 62. He's pouring his wrath out on his people through their enemies. He delivered his people to the sword. He was filled with wrath at his inheritance, his possession. Fire devoured his young men. His virgins had no weddings or wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword. His widows could not weep. Then, you get this picture all of a sudden, the Lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backward. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which is founded forever. And he also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Uh, sheepfolds. So it's an illustration of God finally going, OK, my wrath and my punishment, I'm done. And like a mighty warrior coming up out of the battlefield, he goes to the defense of his people and he lays waste their enemies. And he gives us this illustration, I chose the tribe of Judah. So let me ask you the question in that context, what did he choose? A tribe, a particular tribe. Why did he choose them? That tells you a little bit more. He had set his affections on them. For what reason? <laughs> That's it. Because 78 is a long record of their rebellion. I mean, 
time and time and time and time and time. And then finally goes, God's like, I'm done. I'm done punishing them. Now I'm going to save them. And he rises up. Okay. All right. First Kings 8. Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. What did God choose here? A particular person. For what purpose? To be a king. Okay. Did he choose him for salvation? No. I'm trying to give you things to wrestle with in your mind. What did he choose him for? To be king. Okay. First Chronicles 28. Of all my sons, said David, for the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. What did he choose? Solomon, a particular person. For what purpose? As king. Choose him for salvation? No. Chose him to be king. Okay. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Who's he chosen? (laughs) Who's him? Yeah, I was going to try to trip you all up. This is the first king. He chose him as king. Did he choose him for salvation? No. Okay. 2 Samuel 6. So David said to, I've always pronounced that Michael, and I've struggled with that today. McCall. McCall. Yeah, I know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I've always called her Michael. I hope that's right. Um, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. This is when David danced and his wife mocked him. So the Lord chose David, a particular person, for what purpose? Ruler over the people, right? Okay. Uh, Nehemiah 9. This one's very interesting. You are the Lord God. Here's your word. I chose, I selected, I picked Abram and brought him out of, brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, kind of segue into Sunday. What was Abram doing while he lived in Ur? Making idols. Making idols. Anybody know which idol he worshipped? Well, the thing that he worshipped. He worshipped the crescent moon. And God picked him. And this is why, this is the line you need to draw in election. He didn't pick you because of you. Abram was worshiping a crescent moon when God said, All right, you're going with me, boy. All right? And accomplished his purposes through him. He gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, 
and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Gershite, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise. Therefore, we worship you because, God, you are righteous. So he chose a particular person, and he chose, it to make a, chose him to make a covenant with him to give his people the land. Okay? Joshua 24 is where you find out about Joseph. I mean, Abram, rather, before the Lord. Deuteronomy 12, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will pick or choose from all the, all the tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. So, what did God pick? Place. Yep. Why did He pick a place? God says, I'll tell you where I'm going to establish my name, and that's where you'll worship me. What was the place, by the way? Huh? Jerusalem. Yep. So you see God doing what God wants to do because he has purposes, and so he fulfills those purposes, right? Um, Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. This is the key passage in the Old Testament as far as election goes. And I want you to tell me who, who does it apply to? And then I want you to tell me why he did it based on what? Okay? You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his own possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, i.e. from the hand of the Pharaoh of the king of Egypt. So who did God choose? Nation of Israel. For what purpose? You're way ahead of me. That far. <laughs> For that purpose. And he, he, he chose them, and this is where we'll get the word separate in just a second. He separated all peoples because he wanted one people for his own possession, right? Why did he elect them? That's it. Now, if you ask one more question... You get into the realm of the unknown. Why'd you love them? Because I chose him. Why'd you choose him? Because I loved him. Why'd you love him? Because I chose him. Why'd you choose him? Because I loved him. That's it. That's as far back as you can go. That's as far back as you can take election. And you don't need to take it any further because that's as far back as the word of God goes period. Okay? So, okay, well, why did he love them and choose them? Let's put them together. Because he wanted them for his own possession. Why did he want them? Because he loved them. That's it. That's as far back as you can go. Okay? 
And what man has done, they, he's applied his own logic to this doctrine, and he's taken election a lot further than Scripture has taken it. Okay? We're not called to apply logic to this. We're just called to hear what God has said. And that's why if this doctrine, of course, I realize some of you, if not most of you, I don't know if we're all there yet, but once this doctrine dawns on you and you understand that God loved you in eternity past and there's no reason for him to do that, that breaks your heart. And it causes you to want to worship him and serve him for the rest of your life. And that's why when people hate this doctrine, I'm like, you don't understand the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to motivate us to love and serve, worship and serve, because God has loved us for no good reason. Okay? You guys get this. Can I say this in here? You guys get this who've adopted kids. There's a lot of kids out there to adopt. You know? Why'd you adopt them? Because I loved them. Why'd you love them? Just did. You know? Can't explain that. Just did. Chose them. Picked them. Loved them. Made them mine. You know? And you can see a similar thought with God. There's no good reason, right? And it just fills your heart with brokenness and joy that God has adopted you out of a very broken family and world system. He's made you His own and he's poured his love out on you. His inheritance has become yours. And you're just like, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Okay? So that's the doctrine. It doesn't, and again, these are just, I'll show you some Old Testament, more Old Testament words in just a second, but, you know, this doesn't violate the character of God at all. Um, and as far as those worried about removing, you know, free will, I'll show you that passage in just a second. This does not remove responsibility for you to repent from your sins and put your faith in Him. That's not off this table. If you do not repent and put your faith in Christ, you're not saved. Okay? But this is how God began that entire process in eternity past, right? But again, we haven't talked about salvation. We've talked about nations and we've talked about kings. Let's don't go beyond the text. We have not talked about the salvation of any one individual. But notice this. Uh, God's choices shaped the history of Israel. His choice led to their redemption from Egypt. His choice sent Moses and Aaron to work miracles in Egypt. His choice gave them the Levites whose responsibility was to bless them in the name of the Lord. He chose their inheritance, including Jerusalem, which there he dwelt among them. But they have chosen their own ways, and so God says, I will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. So turn to Isaiah 66, because I did want you to see this. And we'll get into the free will of man here. Isaiah 66, let me start in verse 3. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. God's rejecting their worship. It's hypocrisy. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers a swine's blood. That was hugely offensive. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen, same word, 
their own ways and their soul delights in their sin or their abominations, so I will choose their punishment and I will bring on them what they dread. Same word used twice. They made a choice. Now you have to understand the context in which they made their choice and they chose their own sin in their own way. Because you have to realize in this passage, God has already chosen to rescue them from Egypt. He's already chosen Moses and Aaron to lead them and work miracles among them. He'd already chosen the Levites to bless them. He'd already chosen their inheritance, including Jerusalem. He'd already dwelt among them. And in the face of all that, they made their choice and it was not God. It was themselves. And so when people want to argue that point with me about free will, I'm like, you, you don't even know what you're saying because I know what you would choose if you're absolutely free to choose. You'll choose yourself. And you'll choose your sin. And I think that kind of resonates in all of our hearts because how many of us continue to do something we know, we've known it was absolutely wrong and we did it anyway? Why are you doing that? Because that's your choice. Because you're absolutely convinced this is going to satisfy me, so I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep doing it. That's your free will. That's what you choose, okay? In spite of all that God has done. And we'd have to go back to martiology to really understand that. And the reason you do that is because you're broke on the inside apart from the grace of God. Okay? All right, just a few more words. Uh, this, every time I look at this word, I immediately think of Yoda, and that's not how you pronounce it, so I'll just leave that one alone. Uh, it's translated new or chosen sometimes. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So God chose Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations before he was ever born. Amos 3.2, you only have I chosen, same word, among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sin. Speaking to the nation of Israel, right? Because you're mine, I'm going to punish you. It's interesting, we don't spank one another's kids. It's a little bit frowned upon. I've come close with a couple of your kids sometimes. But typically, you don't do that. God says, I'm going to spank you because you're mine. Okay, I chose you, all right? Uh, another word, usually translated separated, but you can see election in it. Leviticus 20, 24. Hence I said to you, you are to possess their lands. I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Again, the idea of election. Picked one out. I'm going to bless you. 1 Kings 8, 53. You have been separated uh, for you have separated them from all the peoples on the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord our God. Another word, uh, usually taken or took. Numbers 8, they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. 2 Samuel 7, now, for, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. David was found in the pasture. 
1 Kings 11, I will take you and you will reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel. I think this is the last word established. For you, God, have established for yourself your people, Israel, as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Again, the idea of election, but it's a different word, right? Ah, one more. Hosea 11.1 1. When Israel was youth, was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called. That's it. So, you, again, you've got one main word that gets translated into the New Testament uh, and the Septuagint. But you still got a lot more going on than just one word. You got a lot of imagery that's going on that points to the idea of God doing one thing with one particular people's. But again, salvation? No, not yet. Questions?